Hello, I'm Naomi Smith. Welcome to the Bunker Daily for Friday 27th of March. We've been thrilled with the reaction to our new daily edition. We'll be releasing it for the duration of the lockdown and maybe a little longer if people want it. Every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings, the Bunker team will be talking to people who've got useful things to say on news and current affairs, politics, culture and of course, medicine. Plus, the main full-length Bunker podcast will still come out on a Wednesday. If you're enjoying the Bunker Daily, then please do share the link and let your friends know all about it. And the best thing you can do to help spread the word is to leave us a lovely little review on Apple Podcasts. If we're all trapped indoors, we might as well have something interesting to listen to. These are unprecedented times, and my guest today, let's face it, has never been shy of a fight. She's the famously independent-minded MP for Wigan, a renowned champion of our neglected and under-resourced towns, and a former shadow charities minister and energy minister. And of course, she's also a candidate for the leadership of the Labour Party. Voting closes on Thursday and the results out next Saturday. Of course, it's Lisa Nandy, MP. Hello, Lisa. How are you? Hello, good morning. Are your hands as sore as mine from all the amazing clapping (laughs) for our NHS workers last night? Um, yeah, it was a, it was quite a moment actually. I wasn't sure that people would do it, but here, um, we, people weren't just out clapping. Somebody had actually set off some fireworks at eight o'clock, oh. which just shows that whatever London can do, Wigan can do better. Good um, old but Wigan. It was it was it was nice actually. I mean, it it's been um, you know not just for NHS staff, but for a lot of um, social carers as well. Yeah. I think uh, it's been quite a it's been quite a frightening time as mm-hmm. well as a really tough time, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was a moment, really, where I felt like we were we were fighting back against the sort of isolationism yeah. that is creeping into politics. And Absolutely. The, you know, I think I think I think it was just such an uplifting thing we just needed it I just you know and I tweeted afterwards can we just do this every night I just think we just all need to feel like we're pulling in the same direction after years of of, you know feeling like the country's torn in two. Yeah I think um, you've seen a bit of that in national politics over the last few weeks so you know an attempt by most politicians to leave tribalism behind and work across the political divide to try and solve this problem and um, we've seen it in communities as well with people coming forward to volunteer and pull together Mm -hmm. but it is a moment really where we could go either way as a country we could decide whether we use this moment to pull together um, and pull together with the rest of the world as well Mm. or whether we use this moment to go it alone and I think there is a tension in government about that at the moment and it's we are um, definitely gonna we're definitely gonna come to all of that before we do though a really obvious question but one I feel we do have to ask um how has this lockdown affected leadership election campaigning Can, can you do it properly via zoom and facetime and all of that how's that been um, in in a strange way, I suppose it's affected my campaign probably less than than the others because when we set out on this, it was very deliberately to make sure that the public looking at the Labour Party and looking at the leadership contest would see um, that we got it, that we understood what had just happened um, and that we were determined to go out and fight to set it right and to win back people's trust in large swathes of the country where people have turned to the Tories for the first time in their family history and so in a strange way I've always been talking directly to the country and 
So now with coronavirus obviously being the only thing that matters um, and the only thing that is preoccupying me and the others at the moment, um, it's, I'm still doing that. I'm, I'm talking about the issues that are affecting people across the country. I'm trying to see if we can find solutions yeah. and trying to give a voice to people who are doing some really great things that could be replicated elsewhere. So, it, you know, in that sense, it hasn't really changed um, much for me. What has changed is that instead of being out on the road um, and away from my family and sort of, you know, only ever seeing Keir and Becky and probably no one else for days <laughs> on end, um, my family have now got me back. Oh, and, um, so they're happy. Well, my four-year-old is very happy because he's not at school. Um, <laughs> it's quite challenging, though, I can with um, phonics lessons at home whilst trying to campaign to be leader of the Labour Party <laughs> and solve a lot of problems for people um, who are grappling with coronavirus. You've you mentioned the tensions, um, you know, across, well, not just government but but probably across parliament on um various issues to do with this people are already talking about bc and ac you know the world before corona and a world after corona because it really is you know as, as you mentioned this like historic crisis and it has put government and health service to the test as as we've rarely ever seen before um and of course the government's been fighting fires on many fronts but i think the story that has genuinely shocked people across the political divide um, this week is that the government rejected an EU offer to join their bulk buy of life-saving ventilators. Um, and no joking, apparently it was because they didn't read the email um, and instead ordered them from Dyson, um, who've never made them before, but um, you know, uh, who do, of course, donate to the Conservative Party, um, you know, just, just putting that out there. Um, do you do you agree with this uh, triplet that they're putting Brexit before breathing or, or do you have a different view on that? Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, don't, I have no real insight into what's going on in government in terms of, you know, who made the decision to, to order the ventilators. But I think there is definitely still a tension in government about how to handle this and, Credit to people like Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak, who um, would never have dreamed even a few months ago that they would be announcing enormous amounts of state funding and state intervention um, in Britain, um, suspending civil liberties, you know, all things that, you know, for politicians of all parties, actually, in relation to the latter, are deeply uncomfortable. But they've done it because it, it was important and because it was the right thing to do. But there are clearly others working within the government who are still ideological, who um, are reluctant to take the action that is needed in order to get us through this. And it's important that those who are pushing to leave ideology behind win. Um, the ventilators issue was one of those issues that really made a lot of people sit up and think what on earth is going on here we should be cooperating we have to cooperate not just because it's in britain's interest but because what this virus has shown is that we're only as strong as our most vulnerable and if one country is in trouble we're all in trouble and so we've got to deal with this together and when you've got leaders like donald trump um taking a distinctly isolationist turn um turning the idea of America first into America only with suggestions that America is trying to monopolise access to a potential vaccine. Um, we've got to stand up and fight for an internationalist future. That's the great lesson from coronavirus. And um, 
it's not just in relation to the issue about ventilators. There is another thing that the government should be doing right now, and that is agreeing an extension to the transition period with the European Union. I've got businesses in Wigan that are folding at the moment, and they need certainty and they need clarity. Not only are they grappling with coronavirus, but they don't know what terms they're going to be trading on in less than a year's time. The government has to do everything that it can to maximise certainty, and that means leaving behind the ideology of recent years and just doing what it takes to keep people in work. So you talk quite a bit about the government's, you know, some in government's ideological opposition to cooperating with Europe. On balance, do you think that total opposition to anything labelled Europe can survive this emergency? Or, or do you think we can come out of this with a more collaborative spirit, particularly on, as you say, these issues that don't recognise borders, whether they're pandemics or climate change or, or cyber security? Um, I think we're actually in a quite a, a dangerous moment as a, um, as a global community at the moment, because um, what you see when you look across the world in response to coronavirus is um, a group of far-right populists in countries as diverse as South, uh, Italy, in Hungary um, and the USA seeking to other people, blaming illegal migrants, for example, for the spread of coronavirus, Trump talking about the Chinese virus. Um, the, you've obviously got a programme of borders closing, um, the EU resettlement program for Syrian refugees has been halted. And actually, if you listen to world health experts, people like the director of the World Health Organization, they make the argument actually to keep borders open in order to get aid and medical supplies and equipment into areas that need it. That health is one of those areas where international cooperation is essential and the Director General of the World Health Organization says that the greatest enemy isn't the virus itself, it's the stigma that turns people against one another and prevents them from cooperating. Mm -hmm. And yet there hasn't been that international response. It was only last week that the G7 had a, a virtual meeting, had a phone call to discuss how to pull together in the face of this crisis. Macron has been trying to get more uh, cooperation going but so far there's been very little in the way of that and I think this is the moment where Britain really has to stand up for international cooperation. I think this virus will, will change us as a country and it will show us that weakness anywhere is weakness everywhere and um, mm. we can't turn our backs on the rest of the world and as this virus is showing the whole world is now on our doorstep so we've got to cooperate with other countries and We've got to cooperate with a widest range of other countries, but there are countries who are on our doorstep who are incredibly important to them. Just take the ventilators issue. We're trying to get ventilators into the United Kingdom, um, trying to import them from countries that are far away takes longer. And as yeah. health experts in this country say, every day counts. So our relationship with our closest neighbours is incredibly important. And this is showing exactly why. We might have left the European Union, but our future lies with Europe. Absolutely. And we've got to make that case and we've got to yeah. win that argument. Now, you were um, against Labour's um, second referendum policy in the election, but you 
are in favour, as I understand it, of extending the transition period. So talk us through that thinking, why we need to extend and, and how long you think we should we should be seeking an extension for. Well, the, there are businesses at the moment who are um, perfectly viable businesses, but are struggling with two things. The first is coronavirus and the crisis that that presents. Some of them will be enormously helped by the measures that the government has announced, but there's still a real lack of clarity about some of those, about who can access loan schemes, for example. Um, and um, we're working on that to make sure that they have the certainty they need. But there's another great looming problem for those businesses, and that is that in less than a year's time, we'll be out of the European Union with a trading relationship, and we don't know what it's going to look like. So having made the decision to leave and left in January, um, the government has got two choices. One is to extend the transition period so that businesses can have certainty and trade on the same terms as they have been doing for um, an additional year or two, agreed with the EU, or they can continue on this path of um, refusing to um, countenance an extension. But if they do that, it looks likely now, given the EU talks have stalled, that we'll be leaving without a trading relationship and without a deal. Um, that would be the end for a lot of businesses in this country. And that's mm. why I said to the government that we've got to extend. For a lot of my constituents, that sounds like more delay, more quibbling over Brexit. But those are the people who stand to lose their jobs if we don't get this right. And so it's mm. important that we win this argument with government and also win the argument with the country. Some people would say that Corona has so changed absolutely everything and that the world is probably never going to return to you know the exact uh, way it was before, whether that's in terms of how we organise ourselves, how we work, or, or as you've touched on, how we do politics with other nations. Um, do you think it could go as far as saying actually the entire Brexit mandate may not be fit for purpose anymore, you know, with sort of four years on from that? Or or do you do you sort of say, no, 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 this is really just about getting a longer extension to, to get a, a better deal than, than crashing out? I think the, the great mistake that Labour and the Labour front bench made over the last few years was to keep fighting the battles that had already been, and by doing so, miss the battles that were right in front of us. I campaigned for Remain. I was in the shadow cabinet at the time and I spent most of my time in parts of the country where lifelong Labour voters were on a completely different side of the argument to the Labour leadership. And um, having heard and felt the strength of feeling in those areas about um, leaving the EU and a feeling that the political system as a whole and the EU as part of that was far too remote, far too unaccountable and people just wouldn't 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 countenance it. I didn't feel there was any prospect of having a second referendum and winning it. Um, I didn't think that we would get through that without causing enormous damage to the democratic system. And I came to the view in 2016, after the result was announced, that the real battle was whether you could protect close economic and political cooperation between the UK and the EU. And that was why I went against my party, uh, fought for a deal, um, tried to get us to support the deal that Theresa May was proposing. Um, and 
I think, in all honesty, we'd be in a better place now if we had, um, because we've now got a, a Tory government with a huge majority that doesn't want that close economic and political relationship. But I think coronavirus may change that. And I mm. think that this this may show us as a country that the old world order where China and America would at moments when they had to, whether it's the Paris Agreement or the global financial crash come together and lead has gone. And we've got to um we've got to reestablish a new global leadership which will mean that we work very, very closely with partners across the European Union. That doesn't mean that we're going back into the European Union. I think that argument has gone. Um, a future generation may well decide that they want to, to go back in, but that, that is for the future. The battle that's right in front of us right now is that our future lies with Europe and we've got to win that argument and not just win that argument with the government, but out in the country as well. I mean, I so hope you're right on the international front. Um, but But is there an argument around national government doing things differently now you know this is a national emergency lots of talk of it being uh, very similar to wartime um, and uh, and cheeky George Freeman MP um, earlier this week suggesting that Keir Starmer be invited to Cobra meetings even though he isn't uh, the the leader of the opposition um, do you you know do you think that the government should be calling on more talent from outside its own ranks to sit around cabinet or, or key committees and those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I've wanted us to have a much less tribal political system for a long time. I actually literally wrote a book about this with um, Caroline Lucas um, from the Green Party about the way in which we need to find uh, much more common ground. And particularly for progressive politicians, we need to pull together and work together. And, you know, obviously with, with the Conservatives, that's... A really difficult thing. I sent an email to a lot to Labour Party members last week, saying we've got to pull together and work with the government to get us through this. And you know, for a lot of people who are voters and members, that's a really hard thing to to do because they've done so much damage to our families and communities over the last decade. But um, I think it I think it really matters, and I. I don't understand the argument, if I'm honest, for a national unity government. I think there are huge differences between us. I don't see why, with it, when the government's just won a, a big majority, that the opposition would be invited in to make decisions about um, High Speed 2, for example. But in the, on this issue, we absolutely have to cooperate, and you can see why. What the government did in the early days was to make an announcement that they'd drawn up. It would very quickly unravel because there were things that they hadn't thought about and then they would have to go back to the drawing board. When Rishi Sunak came forward with a package of support that he'd drawn up with the TUC and the CBI, acknowledging that it wasn't perfect, but that it was a huge step forward, that lasted. We've got to find a mechanism to do that. I've suggested that we should have a national COBRA um, Mm -hmm. and bring in people from opposition, the trade unions, business, and crucially, um, local and regional leadership, because they are the people who know where the resilience is in their own communities and can help us respond very quickly. I just can't see the reason for someone like Gordon Brown being shut out of the room at a moment like this, when he's dealt with not only the global financial crash, but foot and mouth disease as well. We need to be pulling people in in order to make sure that we get this right. 
talking of of um, local resilience, COVID is already hitting towns that are often considered to have been completely neglected by several governments now, towns like Wigan, um, even even harder. Um, what can and, and should be done to regenerate them? Particularly now, now we're in this sort of, uh, we're not pre or post COVID, we're sort of right in the midst of it. Well, I suppose the first thing is that the crisis has exposed the lack of resilience in Britain full stop. So lack of resilience in our public services that have been starved of funding for a decade, lack of resilience in our care arrangements. We just haven't taken caring needs seriously for a very long time, not just younger people, but people with disabilities, older people as well. Um, And uh, lack of resilience in the public sector workforce um, and in our families where people have very little savings um, so can't cope with emergencies like this and um, uh, across the board in terms of the sort of work that we're asking people to do. I've got a lot of agency workers in Wigan and obviously a lot of self-employed people, a lot of ex-miners who took the redundancy money from the mines and used it to set themselves up as sole traders who are now completely stranded as a result of this crisis. So the, the first thing is that we've got to become a country that understands that resilience in families, in public services, in our communities matters. Um, and we've got to start making sure that we we pay for that and we get that right. The second thing is that in towns particularly, um, because the investment hasn't been there for 40 years and the good jobs have gone elsewhere, what you've got is an ageing population, a lot of older people, and in post-industrial towns in particular, a lot of older people with underlying health conditions. So when the coronavirus crisis hits, and um, there is every reason to believe that we haven't quite seen the, the toughest part of this yet, it's going to be those areas that are most badly affected in the short term. And that's why the government does seriously need to listen to to community leaders and local leaders, because what leaders in towns are saying is actually quite different from leaders in cities. Here, for example, we're trying to construct a new hospital ward in the car park. The director of the hospital believes that if we don't get that up in the next couple of weeks, then we could be in serious trouble. Um, And we need help from the army to do that. Mm. Um, But the, the longer term impact is really, really important from this. I think it will be differential depending on which part of the country you're in seaside towns in particular are going to be really really hard hit by this and it could take decades to recover i i, I agree completely i mean we, at best of britain we've done work on the resilience of public um sector bodies whether local authorities nhs trusts and things and the feedback from their risk registers basically is we can we can deal with one blow not two so uh, you know, if, if there's another natural disaster or there is a crash out Brexit, they, they genuinely would be on their knees. Um, do you have any confidence in all this talk that comes from Johnson and Cummings around levelling up? I think that's the phrase they use, places like Wigan. I mean, Cummings is from Durham, but do you get the sense that they do really understand the North? Um, I think that they, they understand some of it. They certainly were very quick to grasp the level of anger in the North of England and um, during the referendum, we're very quick to capitalise on that and seek to exploit it. Uh, it's not just the north. I mean, you get the same issues in uh, towns like Hastings that Amber Rudd used to represent in the south of England. You get it in North Wales and the valleys. 
Um, you get it in parts of Scotland as well, outside of the major cities. So there is a there is a huge level of anger that they've understood, uh, and they once they said that they would meet it with cash and investment. Uh, some of which materialised in the budget, most of which was kicked into the long grass. Where I think they don't understand what's happening in parts of the world like mine is twofold. One is that we don't just want handouts from central London. We want the power to make those decisions for ourselves. And that is a, a feeling of pride that is very, very strongly felt by people, not just by leaders in those areas, but by the community itself. Um, and secondly, I think they've profoundly underestimated the spirit of people in those areas. They interpreted the vote to leave the European Union as um, a vote for pulling up the drawbridge, Little England, um, you know, in some ways when they suggested, for example, that they were going to exploit um, fears about um, the advancement of civil rights, whether it's LGBT rights um, uh, or, or others, last summer. They showed that they just don't understand areas like this. The vote to leave the EU was a clamour for more power, more agency and more control. But actually what you find when you're in places like not just Wigan, but Barnsley, Sunderland, you find a, a warmth and a generosity of spirit that extends to asylum seekers and refugees, um, people with disabilities, people who are on, having hard times and they're in the benefit system. And I think they just really don't understand that about us. And that leaves a vacuum that I believe Labour must fill. And on that point, and finally to, to wrap up, you started the leadership bid in a pre-corona world and the result <laughs> will come out in a post-corona world. So to what extent could this crisis or should this crisis change the Labour Party and its its long-term strategy? Well, over the last few weeks I've had uh, a lot of calls with people like Jonathan Ashworth um, I also had a conference call with Keir, Becky, Jeremy and Jonathan to discuss coronavirus um, trying to make sure that we're on the same page and that we're pulling together um, to um, to try and resolve this and not sending mixed messages to the public and that's the approach that I've taken all the way through this leadership contest I, I, you know, it's a bit early to reflect on on it. It feels like it's been going on for a hundred years, but it <laughs> it does feel to me like the only leadership contest that I've seen at close quarters where we've managed to show um, um, a decency and um, a camaraderie towards one another that was pretty absent in others, and that's going to be really important for the Labour Party. We've been so broken apart by all sorts of things, not least Brexit, over the last few years. And it was, a, it was a failure of Parliament, but it was also a failure of the party and our structures and our ways of operating. That You had MPs, friends of mine like Stella Creasy, in hugely Remain areas, hearing every time she went back home of an evening that a second referendum was essential and it uh, was inevitable and will clearly be won. And people like me who were hearing exactly the opposite in Wigan, and that we couldn't find a way to bring those two parts of Britain together and negotiate our way through that. Um, that was a huge failure of the Labour Party, and I think we could do things differently and find a way to build common ground in this country again. That's the Labour Party that I've always believed in. And I think, you know, whoever wins next Thursday 
we've set the tone in this leadership contest and that is what I'm determined to help build going forward. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on the Bunker Daily. There's a week to go until the election result is announced. So what's in store for you over the next seven days? Um, I'm uh, I'm about to go and do uh, PE with Joe Wicks. If you've heard about it, it's this. hard. It's <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not easy. That's the immediate thing, and then I've got to get on the phone because we've still got an issue about uh, personal protective equipment for home carers here. So uh, PE first, and then I'm going to get on to sorting that out. Fantastic. Well, good good luck, particularly with the latter. Um, everyone out there, thanks for listening. Please do follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod and let us know what you think of the podcast. We'll be back on Monday with another Bunker Daily. In the meantime, TGI Friday. Time to relax after five days cooped up indoors with, well, two days cooped up indoors. Never mind, maybe the weather will be awful. (laughs) Thanks for listening and see you on Monday. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.